Welcome in, everybody, to the Please Stay Inside podcast. My name is Rob. This is episode number 15. We are joined today by Dr. Courtney Tracy, also known as the Truth Doctor. Uh, she's currently working uh, in California, has just opened up a new clinic, and we are here to talk about uh, the clinic, mental health diagnoses, <laughs> her own experience with mental health, all those wonderful things. So, Dr. Courtney Tracy, welcome on. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be here. <laughs> I appreciate you being here. So, Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, my name is Dr. Courtney Tracy, as you said, and I am a licensed clinical social worker in the state of California, and I hold a doctorate in clinical psychology. I have specialized in substance use disorders and mental health disorders, namely co-occurring disorders. Um, for the last 10 years, I've been in the field for 12, so I quickly found what made the most sense to me in terms of the type of clinician I knew I could be and the population I wanted to treat. Quickly in my career, I realized that I, well, I know a lot more today than I did back then, but there was a, there was an inability for me to sit with another human being as a therapist and really build relationships with them long-term. It gave me a lot of anxiety personally, not because of the clients I was treating. And I, I found these systems going on in my brain that were very um, distracting and made me feel like I couldn't fully connect with the client in the way that they may need. So very early on, I started getting promotions and learning how to do operations and running programs and developing them. And so I've, I've been, I would say, more so a clinical entrepreneur for the last seven years um, while still doing direct, um, you know, facilitating clinical interventions. But mainly my career has been education <laughs> for 12 years and then running these businesses as a clinical entrepreneur versus therapist. So from the bottom to the top and everything in between. <laughs> That's amazing. Mm -hmm. and, and it does seem like, yeah, you have been in so many different areas. You've worn so many different hats in this field. And I'm, I, I'm interested and in, I guess first starting to talk about how it is that you found yourself getting into the field initially, what it was that really drew you to the mental health field. This is, I, you know, I've, I've heard so many therapists answer this question mm -hmm. and so many times it's because of their own personal experiences. And I think it's kind of hard to not say that because mm -hmm. you're working with humans and you're a human. So it's like, I know what it's like to be a human, mm -hmm. but, but I think for me, and it's not easy, but I think for me, it was, I mean, my, I have a bachelor's in psychology, but I think the first time I actually made a decision to be in a certain um, mindset or field of mental health, I guess, was when I decided to get a social work degree. And I think I decided to do that because I sort of grew up understanding that the social systems that control our lives are can be very um, not beneficial to people. So I grew up in a multi-generational household with a single mother on welfare, with um, an adult uncle who, who I would say has level three autism. Um, of course, I cannot diagnose him, but he does not have an official diagnosis. 
but I, I grew up with him and, and I still see him all the time. And so it was like, you know, my grandfather drank a lot. There was a lot of fighting. So I grew up around um, the social systems. I grew up around maladaptive family dynamics and I grew up with my own experience in my mind and body. So when I learned about the field of social work, I realized like there are people and, and the field of psychology, there are people that are doing this as a career to pr provide answers to the questions that I had growing up. Mm. And that could alleviate the suffering that me and so many of my family members and my friends experienced. Mm. So as cliche as it may sound, I think the field found me or there was no way around being in this field it became an obsession very quickly. Mm, I hear you. Oh, almost like a, like a special interest type of deal. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I, I definitely get that. I followed a, a similar trajectory in that kind of way. Um, it, psychology certainly started out to me as being like a way of trying to figure out some of the things that were going on with me. Like, when I had first gone to gone to college, I wanted to actually be a lawyer, which is very different <laughs> from, from being a therapist in some ways, I guess. <laughs> um, and I, I think the moment that I really got into psychology was when I was working through my own substance abuse. And it was initially a real interest of like, so I'm using these things, I'm experimenting with these things. And you know, you, you talk to people about their own experiences with it. But I'm, I was interested in, I guess, the neuroscience of it all. And when I found myself in the throes of addiction, I think it really helped me to better understand things. And it gave me the opportunity to, I think, take seriously my own mental health, which I don't, I don't really yeah. think I might have before. It wasn't a real big thing that was in, instilled in me, um, like the importance of mental health, all of that. Um, I, I wonder from, from, from your perspective, or I guess from, from where you were, from, from your own experience, was mental health something that was really uh, treated as being important early on, or is that something that you developed as you continue to go through life? That's a really good question. And thank you for sharing some of your story too. Um, mental health was absolutely not something that was considered important. However, I think I may phrase it as I growing up mental health in my childhood wasn't possible to be mm. seen as something important because the education wasn't there and there were so many other stressors that it was difficult to take a moment to think about that um and you know i really do gauge my family's understanding of mental health around around how my uncle was taken care of mm. that and 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 he was taken care of. Um, they're still trying to seek out services though. And now he's in his fifties. And, and I think a lot of it actually has to do with the trajectory of my career and how we talk about mental health so much now. Um, but it was, it's interesting because I like those questions that I had growing up, like that was sort of the start of, of my, my interest. It was like, I didn't know that there were answers, but I couldn't help but ask the questions. And so it's like as though mental health was important to me, but I didn't even know it at the time. Mm. And the first degree or the first class that I ever took in psychology, um, I don't know how this happened, but I was not doing well in school. I was using a lot of substances my sophomore year and my junior year, I got an AP psychology 
the only AP class I ever took. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know how I got in it, but it was even then where I thrived and understood all the concepts so well. And, and I was still using substances mm. and I was still, you know, gaining symptoms under diagnoses because I wasn't healing myself in any way. I was very much intellectualizing and obsessing right. over the information. So I cared for, from a young age about mental health. And I think my family could have cared if, if they had space to, mm. but it did develop over the years for sure. Um, once I started actually applying what I was learning mm -hmm. to myself, which you'd think would come easy. You would think people go into these types of degrees because they've worked on what they're going to learn already and they want to give back to other people. And oftentimes we as the healers are healing throughout the journey of becoming a healer um, continuously. I, I don't think it stops. And if someone says that they've stopped healing, I'd love to meet them because I don't know what someone would like that would look like. <laughs> right, right. I, I'm interested if you're if you're open to sharing a, a little bit of I guess what that journey looked like for you and you know and what it continues to look like in continuing to take care of you know take care of things at home you know with yourself while also working to better understand your clients and continuing to work with your clients. Yeah, it has been a very wild journey. Mm. Um, I, well, in a very strange way, I sort of see, you know, being a CEO, being the owner of clinics for the majority of my career, mm. um, there were times in the beginning of my career, actually, where I would accidentally call my staff, my clients, <laughs> mm -hmm. I would be like, let's have a session when I was actually a meeting, because the way that I perceive my employees and my boundaries are much better now. I realized I just cared so much mm -hmm. about them that I, so I don't know, I guess what I'm, where I'm trying to go with this is like, it hasn't necessarily been a journey of me and my path of recovery alongside my client's recovery. That was obviously the case, but it was more so my ability to help other clinicians and to create a program. And what's interesting is and what that journey was like. And what's interesting is I'm about to open up a new center and had to sell the one that I originally founded and opened and ran for four years because of my own journey of healing, because I realized that there were, there was too much in this other center that I owned for me to truly be able to heal. It was like, it felt like a toxic relationship, mm. long distance too, because I had moved 150 miles away. And I was wow. like, this is strenuous this is traumatic there were some really overwhelming things that happened um throughout those four years and so it's been interesting because i feel like a completely different clinician and entrepreneur today than i did seven years ago than i did 12 years ago you know starting working for the county of ventura with very high severity co-occurring disorder clients mm. so it's been a very unique journey and a lot has changed. And I think it's, a, it's it can be a really good um, story for people to understand how life can get completely flipped upside down to be forced to make that choice um, and come out the other side. I'm, I'm, I'm just now coming out of the other side. It's been a very, very um, tumultuous journey. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems like it. I mean, in, to 
have to go through so many different transitions and all of this into, I mean, you, you have opened up this first business, like you had said, when you were uh, 26, right? Correct. What was it like, even just to, to kind of set the framework, what was it like starting a business at 26 years old? I didn't feel 26, mm. that's for sure. But I also didn't feel 16 when I was 16. Mm -hmm. So, <laughs> you know, I had worked in the rehab field um, in Malibu for three and a half years at that time. And it was great. You know, I, I grew up watching Celebrity Rehab and Sober House. And I was like, I live in California. I'm going to be, I'm going to be a famous therapist one day. You know, I was very much in my ego. I was very much like, you know, I need to do all the things. And like, I guess, you know, somehow I got slightly to that point, but in a, but I'm a very different person. I'm not who I thought I was going to be. And it's, and I never intended to truly be here. I had that, that thought um, when I was a teenager and a young adult. So anyways, I was obsessed with um, Dr. Drew and Bob Forrest, who ran that show, Celebrity Rehab. Bob Forrest worked at the facility that I worked at for three and a half years. He's the program founder. So I was like, okay, like I'm here now. Mm. Um, and quickly realized that I had really amazing administrative skills worked there for three and a half years and then realized as a clinician, not just an administrator, I would like to do some things differently. Mm -hmm. And so I had already been the director of clinical operations, the director of joint commission compliance and all of these things wow. um, at a really young age. I mean, I, I got a director position at 24. So for two and a half years, I was running this place, like creating the schedules doing all of the insurance authorizations, like supporting the supervision of students who were in the same program as me, supervising them working at my center. So at 26, I was like, I can do this on my own. Right. Like I'm already doing it for someone else. Right. And I could make it the type of clinical program that I want to make it and really infuse more of this compassion, curiosity, mindfulness, you know, more woo-woo type mm -hmm. stuff that you didn't really see in treatment centers back then. I mean, you did, of course, but very specialized. And it was more so just like, you know, 12-step and, and blanket clinical and the things that are kind of surface and don't really go deep for people. So I went to my husband and I said, I want you to quit your job and I'm going to quit my job and I want you to trust me. Um, and I want to open up this business and I really want to help people. And so it was really overwhelming sure. and there was a lot of pushback. Um, you know, I'm from Orange County, California. And at the time of me opening up my center, Orange County, California was known as one of the rehab Rivieras mm. where all of the insurance fraud and body brokering was going on. It was like, you know, Palm Beach, Florida and Orange County, California. And when I was in Santa Barbara, where I lived and opened up my first center, there were people who looked up my background and said, oh, she's from Orange County. Her mm. husband's from Orange County. They are trying to open up a business to make money and scam people and they're only in their mid-20s and so there was actually like an active 
attempt to close my business and my sober living to the point where we had to have a town hall meeting and they showed up and at 26, I had to stand in front of the town and I had to argue with someone who had the audacity to stand up and say, I want you to tell me why you think that people with substance use disorders deserve to fall under the American Disabilities Act and live in sober livings in normal neighborhoods. Tell me why you think that's okay. And I have, I had, you know, residents at the time that wanted to come support that weren't clients. So HIPAA wasn't broken. I couldn't tell them not to go and defend themselves, mm -hmm. which they didn't. They were passive observers. Um, but it was very overwhelming. There were like, right. you know, newscasters there. And so at 26, I was, I found myself defending mental health and substance use clients in a city that I had already lived in for many years. Um, attempting to fight the stigma and grow a business in a place that really needed help. Right. There were not a lot of facilities available, but I did it and I pushed through and did that for four years until in the middle of doing that, I started my Truth Doctor accounts online, started really introspecting who I was and how am I going to show up and really tell my truth to millions of people. Mm -hmm. I want it to be the real truth. And I, I realized I need to do more. And so I learned a lot throughout those four years to the point where I sold it. And I'm sure we'll get into that maybe a little later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. But it's, it's just so spectacular, everything that you have already done and everything that you had to do. I mean, you, you already have talked about, you know, having to grow up so early you know, and just the the things that you were dealing with. And, you know, it's one of the things that I've talked to people about um, on the on this podcast and elsewhere is the whole idea of, of having to grow up too fast. And the whole idea of when you talk about the systems that are in place, mental health being a real privilege for people like to be able to slow things down and really acknowledge things mm -hmm. and work on them is really such a privilege for people. And when we're talking about substance abuse, I love that you bring up that it needs to go far beyond the surface level and uh i, I think you had mentioned that you do like like dual diagnosis correct mm -hmm. right it, it which is, is so important because a lot of the time it's one of the things I, I think we oftentimes run into this issue where the stigma around mental health it comes from a lot of different places but in one aspect it's about you know what do i have to do in order to get to productivity again because productivity is how i survive like and so in that with substance abuse, a lot of the time it's, let me just get this bandage off and I'm gonna get back to it. And unfortunately it sounds like as well, you're you're battling against all of these people who are not seeing the importance of this. And they're, it sounds like they had an issue with just the fact that residents were living near them. Correct. Yeah, it was a not in my backyard situation. Right, right. It, it's, it, it's wild to, yeah, the, the, the stigma is a, is a very, very big problem. But so how do you kind of view substance abuse? Like when, when, when we talk about substance abuse as a whole, what do you feel like we need to be looking at as professionals and just as, as individuals who are trying to better understand substance abuse, trying to break a little bit of that stigma? That's a really great, great question. And it's interesting how many different viewpoints there really are when it comes to substance use and to addiction. Um, you know, a, a couple of things come up for me. 
The first thing is humans have been using substances since probably before written history. Mm. It's, it makes sense as part of the human condition. We avoid pain and move towards pleasure. We want to seek out spiritual experiences that give our life purpose and meaning. Mm -hmm. We, there's reasons to put things in our bodies, mm -hmm. <laughs> whether that's food, water, or substances that can change how we see the world or ourselves for X amount of time. I think that the war on drugs <laughs> played a really big role on people's perception of substance use and the intent behind it. And, you know, interestingly enough, uh, yesterday I saw that they're um, giving reparations in the state of California for people whose lives were affected specifically by the war on drugs. Mm. Um, black people that were residents in the state of California getting reparations for the war on drugs and how it messed with their families. And so it's good that there's clarity coming to that yeah. on the surface publicly. I think, you know, when it comes to is addiction a choice? Mm. Or is it a disease? You know, I think though, I think it's both and neither. I, I don't know how helpful that language is. Mm. Um, I, I sometimes, you know, a substance use is a trauma in itself. And right. I think it's important that we look at it that way because trauma is, you know, a disruption of our physiology and of our perception. And both of those things are altered significantly when someone puts substances in their bodies. And so it may, yeah, it may seem selfish and it may tear the person's life apart, but they're also harming themselves. Mm. And I think it's really like it, they're causing themselves and their body and their mind and their brain trauma. Right. And, and that's not something someone would actively choose to do. Like there is a difference between substance use and addiction and there's psychological addiction and there's physiological addiction mm. and it's very complex and really what it comes down to is you know obviously the body brain and mind get reworked in a way where these systems become deemed important for survival and then those systems are stronger than any coping skill system any adaptive coping skill system that we have or it just becomes the only one because we've never had another it's important to focus on the why, you know, it's kind of two part. It's like, we have to address the active behaviors. And sometimes it's better to look at that cognitively because it's like, it really is like a cue and then a reward. And we can sort of take more, I would, I would think not like cognitive behavioral therapy, looking at thoughts and feelings, which is important, but on an actual cognitive, like neuroscience level, like what's firing and what's not, and how can we, change those habits and behaviors and potentially contingencies like let's just hack this system mm -hmm. that you have because it is involuntary to a degree and at the same time let's address what are those triggers where it becomes an emotional choice it may be a very mm -hmm. fast emotional choice where it's not really a choice but it becomes more emotional and less just habitual and i think it's important to address both of those at the same time because we often run into people who they address their emotionality. They really believe that they have stable ground. Right. And then one day they just fall into the habit right. and, and, or it's vice versa. They just fall into the habit and they, 
Yeah, or it's vice versa. Um, and I think that that's really important is every single person with a substance use disorder is going to present differently, even if they meet the exact same criteria as another person. So we have to address the why and we have to address the now. And I think both have to happen simultaneously without stigma. Mm-hmm. And, and and I think the last thing I'll say is that can be hard to, it can be hard when you've been affected by the substance use of another person. Mm-hmm. I get that. I get that. And both, like the both work can, both necessary levels of work can be done at the same time. Mm-hmm. And maybe not together. Maybe healing needs to be separate. But I, I get it. I, I get it. I get that it's scary. I get that people can feel can look very unwell and and potentially dangerous when they're under the influence, and they can do things that take lives or take their own or ruin lives. Like I, I get it. And this is a human being with a certain system mm. that needs someone to understand that system and help them rework it if they're asking for help. Right. Right. And, and I. I... You, you've provided multiple perspectives, all of which I really uh, appreciate <laughs> on this. And um, you, you're right. I mean, there there are so many things that go into it. And one of the things that you had mentioned was that, you know, the addiction itself is really traumatic. And it really, it changes everything for a person. I mean, you, yeah. you oftentimes don't really come out of the other side of it the same person. And it's the way that I sometimes approach addiction and the way that I've approached it with myself is that it's not so much about trying to get back to who you were. It's about trying to now develop this new person that you are. You know, who right. are you trying to be and all of these things. And one of the things that I think really comes into this is dealing with the fact that the addiction was very traumatic. Um, I, I know for myself, you know, when I was going through when I was going through addiction, I was an incredibly angry, very manipulative person. I was going to find a way to get what I needed because for mm-hmm. me, being in addiction, I am in survival mode. Like the withdrawals, it does not feel good. It, it is a yeah. terrible experience and it can feel like you get so, or at least I, I got just so tunnel visioned into things that nothing else mattered. Relationships did not matter. Money did not matter. Nothing else was, was all that important. And so part of it is dealing with the trauma of, I have done things and said things to people that I deeply regret and feel Mm -hmm. terrible about. And so I have to contend with that now. I have to contend with the physiological reaction that I'm having from withdrawing and trying to get off off of the substance. I have to cope with the fact that I have no other coping skills. Like this was the thing that I did. You know, I I went into psychosis multiple times on this stuff. And so I, I can really appreciate you talking about the fact that the addiction itself can be such a trauma to have to work through. And one of the things that um, I oftentimes try to do with clients, because I, I, I personally, on a personal basis, think it's really important to be able to forgive ourselves for the fact that we became addicted to something and to be able to, like you said, understand the utility of it and understand the why of it. And I guess I, I wonder what you think about that that process of trying to come to terms with what happens, the, the shame of it, just everything that goes into accepting that, yes, I was doing that at one point. Hmm. 
I am on the same page as you with having so many things that I personally also had done while under the influence, while dysregulated, while just inactive symptoms for various um, disorders and and conditions that I know I now have. one thing it's like it's it's honestly one of the most difficult things i think shame to overcome and when i think on a fundamental level it's like shame is shame is important like it is adaptive it's helpful we should know if you know back in the day if we do a certain behavior and we get kicked out of our community our clan we may be by ourselves to fend for our life and we may die way back then. Like it makes sense to have a mechanism Mm. to feel like something is wrong from the outside, whether that's guilt or whether it's guilt internally or shame externally. And, and so I think it's, it's a hard feeling to get rid of because it feels so important. Like our brain just simply feels like it's an important thing. And so it latches on and it's hard to detach from it. And I think, you know, the first step that I had taken was knowing, like being able to visualize and understand that if I'm feeling shame or guilt, it means I'm not that person at at minimum, at minimum, this is the person that did those things. And I am now this person feeling ashamed or feeling guilty at minimum. I am not that person. Right. Now you still feel like that person. Mm -hmm but objectively you are not. And so that's like the first step that has been helpful for me. I think acknowledging time, like we are constantly fluctuating throughout the day and there are these bigger, major fluctuations that happen if we give ourselves enough time Mm -hmm. to experience those. And I think that's part of what can be really hard when it comes to shame, guilt, regret, embarrassment, mistakes is that we want the time to go by now. Like Mm -hmm. we don't want to feel it because it feels so bad and then avoiding it and trying to push it makes it worse. And so I think one, acknowledging I am not that person two, providing yourself time, like healing is takes time. Think Mm -hmm. about it when we're, you know, we're picking at a scab because we wanted to disappear faster. Like, Mm -hmm. sure, maybe it comes off on the surface, but our skin is still healing underneath and for as long as it needs to take. Mm -hmm. And that's really important for us to, to, to realize. Um, and then forgiveness, like attached to those things. Sometimes it's, sometimes you do have to go a step above just forgiving yourself. Sometimes it's not easy to just know, like, I'm not that person and I feel different and I'll do different. It's not only time to alleviate those emotions, but also time to, to repair, to uh, not undo, but replace or make equal the good compared to whatever you would consider to be the bad. Mm. It's complex though. Cause again, I think we want to, we want to attach to it and we want to let it go at the Mm -hmm. same time. It's it's a battle. Absolutely. And and I think a lot of what you're talking about, too, plays into the whole mindset of relapse as well. A lot of times my clients have a terrible time working through relapse. And it it like when you talk about time, you know, I want to just get separated from this. I want to get separated from this. But then I relapse on something. It doesn't matter if I was five years away from it, whatever. I feel like I'm back at square one. And so I wonder how all of this plays into that as well. 
Hmm. I love that. You know, I usually have a very like helpful thing to say <laughs> when it comes to to this and it's different with substance use actually what i typically say is you know for example i am diagnosed with borderline personality disorder and i'm also a human being that gets irritated sometimes and finds myself like mad at something and finds myself feeling hopeless at times normal experiences within the human condition However, with this diagnosis, if someone was in my position experiencing a normal level of emotional human distress, they may think I am regressing back into my symptoms. Mm. And it's, that's not necessarily true. Like just because someone is diagnosed with major depressive disorder doesn't mean if they go through a period of sadness or grief or regret or shame that they are now actively in their major depressive disorder symptoms. Mm -hmm. They're just a human being. Of course they can cross that line, but it doesn't necessarily mean I'm in regression mode. I am in relapse mode. Um, when it comes to substance use, it feels like, and you know, maybe putting, you know, gambling disorder or, or maybe eating disorders, any disorder where there's like a behavioral, like an active behavioral component, mm -hmm. not secondary, like depression, you may find yourself in bed, but like mm -hmm. active physical or behavioral symptoms, it can be harder because then it's like, well, I am doing the exact same thing. Like I did drink that. I did use that. And this is a symptom and I am and I am in relapse mode. So it does make it a little bit more difficult to tell yourself, like, I'm not where I was before. I'm where I am now, just experiencing a similar level of distress. Mm -hmm. And then I think another thing, I tend to do this when I get questions. It's just <laughs> the, web of, the web of all the potentials. Uh -huh. But it's also like how intense is the relapse and so was it something you know if you if you go full-blown for four days using multiple substances and like lose your job and it was just this first relapse after years it may really feel like I am absolutely back right. there and I think it's just it's realizing like unless you have a time machine like there is absolutely no way that you have undone this progress right there's no way. I mean, I, I once heard a therapist say like, if you're on a road trip and you make it halfway the right direction and then you make a wrong turn and realize it after 15 minutes and turn around and go back, sure you've lost that 30 minutes, but you didn't lose the half of the progress. Yeah. And it's harder for us to see it like that because we're having this subjective internal experience where time exists on the outside but it doesn't really exist on the inside we are always where we are in the moment right. and so it makes sense to feel like we're in that moment because the moment never really changes within us there is never a break you know i mean we're sleeping but when we wake up we're back where we left off right. and so it makes sense it's more difficult and it's important to realize that you can't backtrack your life you don't undo the progress even if you lose your job, it's like, mm -hmm. well, you did, you have all that time. It's not like you have to remove it from your resume as an example. Mm -hmm. You still have all those years of experience. Right. And yeah. And one of the things that I, I, I love the, the, the driving analogy, um, when, so I mean, in relating this back to, you know, addiction as a trauma as well, 
you know, when we're talking about trauma, of course, there are triggers, you know, things that remind us of the trauma, and it makes us, like you said, feel like we're right there again. And so with addiction as a trauma, when you are back in the addiction, it is, you know, it feels like you are right back in that trauma, because I mean, you, yeah. you are right back in that trauma. And so you have to deal with all of that as well. And, and so mm -hmm. I can appreciate the the harm reduction type of mindset of like, you know, being able to acknowledge some of where we've been and where we can continue to go in, in all of this, instead of saying that, well, I'm back now and, and this is it. Right. Um, I work with uh, the primary population that I really work with right now um, are adolescents. And I run um, an intensive outpatient program uh, in, in the, the clinic where I work. And so I work with a lot of people who are working through self-harm. And so I always really want to take that that harm reduction type of type of standpoint because you know I'll have kids who go for several weeks without harming and then they have just a day that has just hit them and you know they harm and then it, it's like well why don't I just keep going it's like well let's talk about why not and let's talk about where you've been and everything um, and I, I, I do want to relate this back to like you had mentioned with borderline personality disorder um, I, I'm curious about what your experience has been like with this, because you, you talked about too, with just the, with the timeline of life, you know, sometimes we have our ups and downs and sometimes your emotions can go this way, they can go that way. I find with borderline personality disorder, one of the things that's so distinct about it is that a lot of times from what I've witnessed in the places that I've worked previously, is a lot of times people get really pigeonholed with that diagnosis. And so now, even when you are in this reasonable space, you are, you know, doing things in a way that other people would say, oh, well, that makes sense. But then they find out your diagnosis, it's like, oh, borderline, that person's borderline. And I wonder, I guess what your experience has been like working through borderline personality or you know, what your experience has been like as a, as a client. It's been very interesting. <laughs> um, you know, I developed the behavioral aspects of borderline personality disorder when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. Like that was where I found substances. That was where I really started emulating the emotions I saw in my household and absorbed them as my coping skills. Um, and that's when I began engaging in self-harm. Now, my self-harm wasn't, um, it wasn't cutting, it wasn't burning, it wasn't physical harm to my body in that way. Mm. It was using sex as self-harm. Mm. So that's what I would use. That's how I was able to make connections with people at that young age. And it was very harmful to myself interpersonally, physically, emotionally. Um, so that was tricky. That was really like my go-to for self-harm for many years, even into my young adulthood, probably a good 10 years. Mm. Um, mixing substance use and in, in, in all of that. Um, I wasn't diagnosed till 22. And that was after ending up you know, in a grippy sock vacation, ending up in, in a psych ward for detoxification and stabilization, um, which I then ended up treating clients at my own outpatient five years later wow. um, that would come from that program, which is great. 
Um, but it, it was very hard to be in those symptoms and not understand. Like, that's kind of what I mean, where it's like I was taking these courses for psychology and obsessing over them and not, I wasn't capable of applying those enough to myself to make the changes that I needed to make. And it wasn't actually until recently, like within the last six months that I've been able to complete the circle to make why I developed the way I developed makes sense. Mm. So as a client initially, like, you know, I was in outpatient in, I was in the inpatient ward and then outpatient treatment in um, my early twenties where I was getting, you know, I was getting treated not necessarily for borderline. Like it was a mm. book that had 500 worksheets mm. and it was on cognitive behavioral therapy. You know, it wasn't the type of depth work that I know that I, that I now know that I needed. Right. Um, and this type of psychoeducation I needed. No one was really talking about, neurodiversity, mm-hmm. neurodivergence 10 years ago in the way that they're talking about it now. And so for me, typically as a patient or as a client, it, w- it wasn't the type of care I needed. And within the last year to six months, I've actually gotten the care that I need. Mm-hmm. And I've found out that the, because I sold my facility and went on a wild two year experience, mm-hmm publicly, which wasn't the best, um, to figure out who I really was. And now I know. And so now I actually don't consider myself a client of being treated for borderline necessarily. Mm -hmm. I consider myself a client being treated for my neurodivergence. Mm -hmm. And just knowing that for me, the borderline, the borderline personality symptoms are just a categorization of coping skills that I gained and that I have you know, I don't meet the criteria for borderline anymore, but I still, I still say I have borderline personality because I do. Mm. I just don't have borderline personality disorder. Mm. And that's the same thing as when people say that they're autistic and they don't have autism spectrum disorder. And these some, and I'm going on a bit of a tangent, but sometimes people will say, I don't think, I don't think autism spectrum disorder should be a disorder at all. And I get that because people aren't, understanding that there's a difference. You can totally be autistic and not have a disorder and your autistic symptoms can be causing you so much distress in your life that it's a disorder at the time. Now, I think what's hard is that you can't ever really remove, like once you're diagnosed with it. And so it's like, we should really get to a place where you can remove the disorder part and just Mm -hmm. be autistic or just have borderline personality. And maybe maybe you won't eventually have borderline personality. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, it, it sounds like you're talking about it as like acknowledging it as just a difference and not as a like, there's something wrong with you. That, that's kind of what I'm. Yeah. Yeah. And and there may be something wrong and it may stem from those specific behaviors, traits, criteria, symptoms, but it doesn't have to always be the case. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I. I, I love it for you that you have been able to get to the point where you now feel like you're getting the care that you really deserve. And it's not, you know, just worksheets of, you know, the surface level type mm-hmm. of, let me figure out how to manage all of this. Uh, I yeah. love that you've, that you've been able to get to that point. You, you mentioned the doing this all publicly and you are, you know, a pretty large influencer. I mean, uh, how many people on TikTok? It's like 1.8 million or so. Yeah. What, what's it like? navigating all of these things 
and being so, you know, you're, you're known. It's weird to get what you always wanted <laughs> and to not be that person, mm. you know, which I'm really happy about. It's hard to say, like, I feel like someone could clip this and be like, look, she said she wanted to be a famous therapist one day. Like she's, <laughs> this is so embarrassing. And like, the thing is, is I, I don't want, I don't want that, you know, like I don't, I'm not, that's, it doesn't feed me mm -hmm. like where I'm at. I feel it's actually very alarming and frightening. Mm. Um, and you know, I started my platform when I owned my first center centers, it was okay. So I opened up my center in 2017. In the beginning of 2019, I opened it with my husband. In the beginning of 2019, I was three months postpartum, and my husband was publicly arrested, um, which was very, it was extremely traumatizing. Um, it involved like SWAT team, canines, crisis negotiators. It was in the middle of the night. Um, we had gone out for our first night as parents mm. um, and were drinking and hadn't slept for weeks and were really distressed and it was our first child. And so it just, it didn't end well. We were very much in like survival coping skills. We had overdrank or, or I don't even know if we overdrank, but it affected us so differently. It had been like over a year right. since we had put anything in our bodies. Um, so it ended really terribly and I had to fire him because mm. that was our policies. Mm. Um, and so then I was running it by myself with a newborn baby in the last year of my doctorate, wow. running my business by myself in 2019. And I was not doing well after what happened happened. I had PTSD symptoms. It was, it was a disaster and, and everything was fine with my center too. I've wow. learned over the years, I'm very good at um, compartmentalizing and dissociating and literally not showing up with my issues mm -hmm. at work, which isn't good for me, but it was, yeah. you know, my ability to be a clinician and to be an owner. Um, so once I realized like I'm really struggling and I am public enough where I own a center in this city and I feel like I need help and I don't feel like I can ask for help here because I don't want to be judged. I already had such difficulty getting this business off the ground. Right. And so I was like, I need like an outlet. I'm going to go, I'm going to make an Instagram account mm -hmm. and tell the truth about being a therapist and having issues. So I called myself the truth doctor and made the account. And Throughout that process of balancing both this treatment center that I created on my trauma responses where I really didn't truly understand myself and then this platform where I'm as authentic as I can be, I'm telling the total truth. It felt like it was so difficult to be doing both to the point where I realized, I think it was like the end of 2020 and like, of course, like the world is burning, right. like right. all at the same time, my dad was diagnosed with MS in 2019 also, which was so difficult to deal with. So 20, the end of 2020 comes around and I think like, I can't do this anymore. I need to sell this facility. My symptoms were getting bad. I was feeling like suicidal. Mm. I, I had to get, I had to get rid of it. 
Right. And, like, and that's how it felt. Like I need to get rid of this and like my time is limited. And if I don't get rid of it soon, like I know I'm not going to be okay. Um, and it was really, it cut it really close mm. actually. Um, so then I had no more facility by wow. April, 2020. I can't believe it's been past two years since then. Yeah. Um, and I only had my platforms. And what was interesting was my mental health. I thought it would get better and it got so much worse. Wow. And I realized that I needed to figure out what the hell was going on. Why did, why did the alleviation of this much stress make me feel so much worse? Right. And that's when I started finding out what was really going on for me, which, and this just, it took a year of just stabilization. Then I got into proper therapy. Um, I was diagnosed with ADHD last November and I was diagnosed with autism in February of this year. And what happened was I had my platforms and I had my facility. And when I got rid of my facility, my brain, I had spent so many years under so much pressure and so many pieces to put together and ways for my mind to be d distracted and busy and constantly, and it was, it was gone. Right. And it felt worse to feel so empty and so like, like, it's like my brain wanted to do and do, and there was nothing to do. Wow. And so it actually, I got way worse until the last six months. So my content actually on all my platforms over the last two years has not really been as frequent as before that mm -hmm. I was posting every day and growing and growing. And I actually, I don't think I've grown in over a year, which is, you know, not what's important, but it shows that, that I ended up where I ended up with all of these people listening to me for mental health advice. And I ended up in the worst state of my own mental health that I had ever been in to the point where I don't even really utilize my biggest platforms anymore and mm -hmm. connect with my audiences anymore because I feel like my message, like I'm not ready now. Like mm -hmm. everything I shared before was authentic, but I haven't quite known how to show up again. Right. And so that like doing this interview even is the first interviewer, you know, I've shared a little that I was diagnosed with ADHD, but I've never shared that I was diagnosed as autistic until now. And in a few weeks when I launch my podcast and, and share it with my community. So it's been so interesting yeah. to find out so much about myself publicly in front of everyone, but no one really knows what's going on on the back end. Like mm. I've seen comments like, Hmm, like your, her content seems really off lately. She's just mm. posting um, sponsorships and ads and is using these platforms for money and doesn't really care. And it's like, that's not at all what's happening. You know, like there's so much going on on the back end of me learning to grow and figure out, how I can show up for people because my platform is a little different. Right. I mean, it's similar to others, to other therapists, but not all therapists. It's very much like I've made it like about me mm. and like being this public figure and less about like just my specialties. And so it's been really hard to figure out how to show up again. Mm. Um, and while I'm also learning who I really am, Right. You know, like it's only been a couple months since I right. found out my true self. Right. 
how are you feeling about that diagnosis and you know finally getting that assessment and getting that figured out i feel so relieved um it makes so much sense and it's also very like sad mm. like i it makes me emotional because you know, one thing that really gets me is like the, the thing that like sets me off in the whole world yeah. is child abuse mm. and children feeling like, like just like they have an existence within them and like no one is seeing it right. like that. Like I can't even like think about it, <laughs> but so I, when I think about myself all, after like all these years, I'm like, Oh my God, like, that's so devastating for like little me and like all the people that just don't like have a validating environment and then they develop these like traits that just make people hate them and like they hurt people and they hurt themselves and so like it's so relieving and it's so devastating and you know, these emotions are coming, like, they're, they're not really like pain. It's, it's like, it's just overwhelmed with like, how true I know this to all be and how much, how important it is, especially as the truth doctor, like, that's the message is like, you have a truth and you deserve to tell it and for it to be seen. And, and it's just, it's wild being where I'm at. And, and I'm I'm a little scared, I have to say, like to come out because I am who I am at this point to many people. And I don't want to take the conversation away. I'm very successful. I'm stable. I'm pretty. And like, all you know, like, and it's important, I think, to say these things because they can, they lead to like, like, I'm just not the picture I'm not the poster child for my main disorder you know I was very much a poster child for borderline and I was comfortable with that and and I was fine with that I was like one of the most extreme cases I think you could say and and I was comfortable being that being one of those voices mm. and faces in the field and I'm scared about this I'm, I'm scared about being about even saying it and being discredited yeah. or being told it's not true or like um, taking over the conversation for other people who do experience more difficulties when it comes to this this disorder so i feel like i've said a lot um, and it's okay if, if we go a little over um sure. it's very i'm very much a client just as much as i am a clinician mm -hmm. Um, and that's okay. It this is. is where I'm at. It is. And I mean, and you deserve to be understood. And it's devastating that you went this long of your life not being understood. Yeah. So I can, yeah, I can get the sense that there is now that you are beginning to understand it, you know, I could definitely understand the fear of once again, continuing to not be understood. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, something that 
it's like, do I say this? I'm going to say it. <laughs> um, like knowing that I, you know, I've been looking a lot into this and I do have to say, I didn't even go in. I didn't even, I would have never thought that I could have autism or ADHD if it wasn't for TikTok. Right. Like truly, I am a licensed clinician with a doctorate in this shit. And it took real life experiences from people that I saw on TikTok to be like, wait, this really does sound like me. And I've been interviewed by the New York Times and the Washington Post on people self-diagnosing through TikTok. And and I'm, I feel like I'm just in this very weird place like right now where I am I am I am all of it like I'm trying to do a little bit of it all and it's it's a little scary um I don't even really quite know where where oh um and so I just for anyone that like has that experience of like being on TikTok and seeing these symptoms or criteria like I understand all of the nuances with self-diagnosis. I get it. I've said in my videos, do not use my video to self-diagnose yourself. And and it's okay to relate to it and to take that information to a provider. And that's what I did. I took it to a provider. I said, I think I have ADHD. They said, you have attention deficit deficits, but you don't have ADHD. Attention and concentration deficits. So I was like, okay. But like, the, what about all this other, all these other right. symptoms? And then I went to someone. They said you do have ADHD. Um, this person just thought that you couldn't because you were in the Gate program and you got a doctorate and you could have right. a hold a conversation with them. And then I went to, you know, did the full autism testing, assessments, bringing in collateral, like weeks at a time or over a course of weeks, um, and then received my actual diagnosis a combination of ADHD and, and autism. And, and she was like, you don't meet for borderline. And I was like, I know now, but I do have it. I'm like, I'm answering these questions with my behaviors now, but I know what I hold back and I know what I feel right. and I know. So I finally got it. And so just anyone listening, like it takes a long time to figure out what's going on with you and all of the time that you've already spent being alive like that is all stuff to sift through and it doesn't mean let's dive into all of those really awful experiences but it does mean let's know that they occurred and take a look at what that means so it's possible to figure it out it's okay that it takes time and also now that i know i've seen a lot of videos on tiktok of people who were late diagnosed they got diagnosed because they found themselves in autistic burnout which is where i'm at where i'm still at right. where i'm trying to come out of and i've actually had two experiences over the last two months since my diagnosis where i have it has been terrible. Like it's been these awful meltdowns that have happened twice, worse than has ever happened in my life. And I've realized that, and through listening to other people on TikTok, that 
the coping skills, the masking is so much harder to do mm. now that I'm aware that I'm doing it. And so it gets harder to cope with and address these overwhelming situations in the way that I used to. Mm. So I felt a little scared saying like I've had two super intense meltdowns while I'm about to open up a treatment center for mm. co-occurring disorders in three weeks. And, you know, some people, you know, I'm sure that there's people that will listen to this and be like, that means she's not stable enough mm. to open up somewhere. And I just, I think I said all of this so that anyone listening, I just want you to know, like, your mental health conditions do not, don't have to impede your ability to function in life, to be successful, even in the mental health field. It really comes down to, do you understand how you need to show up? Can you actively show up in session? Can you be that person for your clients or for your staff members and also handle what you need to handle on the side? Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> I cannot extend enough appreciation for you being willing to be vulnerable about all of this. Um, I mean, especially with, you know, masking for such a long time and through, you know, coping through productivity. And I, I do the same in so many different ways. It has to, everything has to be perfect. I have to be busy all the time. If I'm not busy, then I'm not good enough. And then I can mm. so much appreciate the courage that it takes to have to, or not even to have to, to choose to slow things down and to acknowledge that, yeah, there are some things going on. I've had these meltdowns and I have been in this place into being to be willing to just talk about that it's so important for people to understand like you're saying that a diagnosis is a diagnosis and it does not always mean that you know you can't live a happy life and that you can't do these things and i i feel like you are amazing evidence of that thank you that means a lot Absolutely, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, where do you see things going from here? Getting better. <laughs> um, yeah, I have so much going on. You know, even this morning I was like, I think I need to pick back up with my therapist. Mm -hmm. I like took a little break. I'm there too. Um, <laughs> I'm like, I think this seems good. I'm also, you know, I just got out of my first trimester of pregnancy. So baby on the way, business on the way. I'm writing my uh, debut nonfiction book called Your Unconscious is Showing. And it will be about really what we talked about in, in the later half of this episode, you know, which is what I, it's the perspective that I've learned to take as an individual with all of my life experiences and clinical education this is how I treat people. It's how I treat myself. It's knowing what we have control over and what we don't. And the majority of it, we don't have control over, but we have enough control to change what we don't have control over. And a lot of people don't say that. They say like to accept the things I cannot change. And it's like, as much as you can't change your systems overnight, you can change them consciously enough to where your unconscious works more in your favor automatically. You can do that. So there's a lot coming up. It's, I call this year the three B's, the baby book business year. 
it's a big year. I, I tend to do this to myself. Um, <laughs> I was in this exact place seven years ago um, with a doctorate and a baby in a business. Uh -huh. So I know it's doable. I feel like I'm much more me going around this time. This new center that I'm opening is runs so differently, has such a different perspective, and is actually more specialized. So I'm a human being that has experienced substance use issues, personality, dis issue, personality disorder issues, and neurodivergence. And we are treating that exact population. That's amazing. And that means a lot to me um, because as much, like I know every human being on the planet is important. That's why I call my audience humans because I think it's important that they know and remember that. Um, and at the same time, I have found that some of the most misunderstood human beings are the human beings that have the most important messages. Mm. Um, not to qualify, you know, of course, you're important if you have been traumatized mm. or something like that. But that those voices need to be heard in a safe space and given skills to share that voice. Yeah. Um, so I feel a lot more like what I'm doing on my platforms is now what I'm doing in person. And it didn't feel that way years ago. And it feels that way now. So my future is showing up on social media again, revamping the truth doctor as who I really am and and hopefully it's still, hopefully people still want, want to watch it. So we'll see. I, I love that for you. You know, you're, you're approaching life as a whole human being, you know, you are you universally, regardless of where you're at. And I, I yeah. think that's, that is the greatest gift of all to be able to drop the mask and be able to be our full authentic selves. And so I, I love that you get to be that and you get to do that. Um, and that you are you. working to pay that forward to so many people who really, really need that. So I can't thank you enough for, I mean, being here, sharing your story with everybody, you know, being authentic, being vulnerable, and doing the work to help other people find that as well, to find a way through the addiction, through the, the, the difficulties with coping and trying to find their full authentic selves. Um, I, I think it's amazing what you're doing. Um, absolutely, absolutely. So I guess the last thing I, I do want to ask you, knowing what you know now, and you know, approaching this business and you're trying to go into the world as your full authentic self, the baby book business. Um, <laughs> are there things that you think you'll want to do differently, just like for yourself, just to kind of keep yourself in a in a place where, you know, you, you feel like you can be you can be happy. Thank you for asking that question. You know, I know that with my diagnoses, one of the things that stress me out the most is something that I, well, I guess that my brain does to me, but that I do to myself. I am my brain, mm -hmm. sort of. Um, is I just, I, I judge everything systematically. Like I don't judge people, but like all, with all the stuff that I have going on, like 
I don't know. Like, even when I'm driving, I'm like, why would that person turn at that? Like, what? <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Like, logically, like, that doesn't make sense. Uh -huh. It's not the social rule. Like, and it's just, it's very distressing mm -hmm. and very unnecessary. Mm. And so outside of all the things that I'm doing, that's one of the things I just think will make me so much happier is just like acknowledging that I know that that's something my brain does, mm -hmm. trying to figure out why it does it. Cause like I could assume and I could read about it, but I need to feel why it does it and then try to reduce that. Like that's mm -hmm. such an unnecessary behavior and it causes me so much distress just physiologically. Right. Yeah. Cause we have the thought and then it, and mm -hmm. so I think that that's it. And like, of course I feel like I answer everything in my life ever through the lens of psychology because I can't help it. But that will make me happier. It will make me happier. It's just being, I guess a way to say that not clinically is mm -hmm. I'd like to create more peace and acceptance within myself for things that I don't need to be attached to. Mm. You know, I think that will make me a lot happier. Yeah. I, I love that for you. And I, I would, I would agree with that. Mm -hmm. um, so last thing, uh, Dr. Courtney Tracy, where can people find you? You can find me at thetruthdoctor.com and on TikTok, Instagram, and YouTube, you can find me at the period truth period doctor. And if you're someone that books stuff out over a year on your calendar, <laughs> then I have a book coming out um, yes. that will probably be available for pre-order around this time or in a few months next year. I'm so excited to be able to read it. Thank Dr. you. Dr. Courtney Tracy, thank you again so much for being here, for sharing everything with us and for being willing to, again, be vulnerable and, and just share everything with us. I, I'm hoping that some people at home can relate to what you've talked about and be able to find something that really helps them through something. So I really appreciate you for all of that. And so for everybody at home as well, people who are watching the live stream here on YouTube uh, or people who are listening later on on all podcast platforms. Appreciate you so much for listening. This has been the Please Stay Inside podcast. My name is Rob and take care of yourselves. We'll talk again next time.